Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and we are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can access all the episodes. We also invite you to join our monthly podcast club, and we welcome speaking to your organization or group on Aging Reimagined. If women aging is a market you would like to reach, consider sponsoring an episode. Finally, if you are an author with a book about women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we are very pleased to be talking with Audrey Peoples, age 81. Audrey is a history maker whose life's work is devoted to eliminating racism and empowering women. She's a woman of firsts, the first black woman to hold a management position at a major Chicago bank, to head up the Girl Scouts of Chicago, to serve as CEO of the YWCA metropolitan area. Audrey is also a longtime member of numerous boards, including two terms with the Chicago Community Trust. And whether as the executive in charge or a volunteer board member, Audrey's intention is to open the conversation about racial issues and advocate for diversity and inclusion. She is an ardent feminist who promotes equality and inclusion of women and girls, all ages, classes, and races. Audrey was referred to us by two guests, Suzanne Dumbleton, episode 82, and Audrey's sister, Ronnie Hartfield, episode 92. So Audrey, peoples were honored to be in conversation with you today. And welcome to Women Over 70. Well, thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. Um, so, Audrey, let's just get right to the heart of things. And what in your early beginnings uh, might have encouraged you to, to take on racism and sexism as your life's, kind of life's mission? I'm not sure that I took it on in my early beginnings. I grew up in a family with five kids. I was the youngest of five. So uh, when you're the youngest of five, you're always fighting for position and having your opinions heard. Um, I think it wasn't until I got to high school when I realized that uh, the young men were always getting all the attention in terms of asking the questions. I always kind of wished I had gone to an all-girls school. I mm -hmm. went to a Chicago public school uh, because one of the things I've learned as I've matured is that there is a... Uh, value in girls going to school with girls because they don't hold back and they're willing to, you know, so if a math question comes up, they don't wait for the young man to answer it. Um, so that was my first, um, I think my first introduction to seeing that there were some differences between the way people treat men and the way people treat women, uh, as in terms of as an empowerment of women, um, as it relates to racial issues, uh, I grew up in a segregated part of Chicago uh, where we were just very comfortable and very happy in our segregated neighborhood. And um, I went to a segregated high school and it wasn't until I got to college that I realized uh, 
what racism really was and what it meant. It hadn't occurred to me prior to that. Did you experience, actually experience racism in college? Well, initially, uh, when I went to, uh, I graduated from high school in 1957 and I went down to the University of Illinois and one had to send a picture with your application. So that in terms of giving you a roommate, they wanted to be sure you got a, a roommate of the same race. Uh, and I was given a roommate who was a junior. Uh, and so during freshman week, um, she wasn't there. And I was at that time, I was the only black girl in my dorm for freshman week. I was the only black freshman. So mm -hmm. I had made friends with some of the girls who came from the north side of Chicago in those small southern towns like Ohio, Illinois and Greenville, Illinois, towns I'd never heard of. Mm -hmm. um, but by the time the black girls came, um, it was sort of like you either got to be with them or you've got to be with us. Mm -hmm. So then that push-pull starts with sort of who, with whom do you identify? And what choice did you make? I, I just refused to make any. Ah. I mean, I just sort of, uh, you know, uh, my father had a mantra in our family. I mean, it was a, you know, a, it's kind of crazy, but it was a, you're as, the good, you're as good as the best, but no better than the rest. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I just sort of thought, okay, I can do this. So I managed, I actually had become very good friends with a Jewish girl from Sullivan High School. And um, she and I were friends. And then her parents came down um, and she wanted to be my roommate and they weren't having it. Oh. So wow. I continued to have my, my, uh, my, my junior roommate graduated mm. ahead of me. And then I got another roommate who was also a, a black woman. Mm -hmm. But I still had the I had made friends with those girls because that was my first opportunity to be away from home alone. We mm -hmm. always took family vacations together. So mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, I there was an incident when I was a young person. My mother, who was one eighth black, took us down to the south and we were waiting for my uncle to pick us up in the uh, bus station. And the guy came and told my mom that she uh she had to go into the white side of the station. And she said, well, no, the, you know, I'm here with my kids. And so it, I mean, there started to be a little crowd gathering outside. Mm. So uh, my mother went and got a, um, uh, a guy who had a taxi. He had his own car, but he said he would drive us in his car. But my sister and I had to sit in the back. And then he would drive my mother out to my uncle's farm, which is what he did. But mm -hmm. I didn't. I didn't seem scared. My mother didn't seem scared. We just sort of thought, well, that's what's happening down here. It was the South. Uh huh. That's so interesting. Wow. So Audrey, when I talked with you recently, you said that you've been the first, as I as I indicated in the, my introduction of you, and you said, you know, one can just get tired of being the first. You're right. <laughs> but you were. <laughs> You were the first, and and you've been very influential in your roles. And what what um, what what did you set? What was your experience? Give us a sense of your experience being the first. And well, I think I think part of it is you do get tired of being the first because people have sort of expectations, or they want to see you as different. They think, okay, you know, and I always say, well, there are a lot of people like me. You just haven't met them. Mm -hmm. um, but you are also aware that you are sort of setting some milestones for people and you don't want to do the wrong thing. 
So it can be tiring when people, I mean, often people would say, oh, I forgot you were a woman or, you know, I, I forgot you were black. You're so different. Well, no, I'm not different. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people like me. You just don't know them. Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of, uh, you know, things of the first. Somebody recently asked me, uh, I became the president of a women's club. And she said to me, are you familiar with a, it's just those little uh, systemic things that I don't think people even know they have. Um, she said to me, do you know how to read a profit and loss statement? Mm-hmm. And wow. so my response was, I read an, I ran an organization with 300 people and a $14 million budget. <laughs> I'm familiar with a profit and loss statement. <laughs> uh, and I don't think she got it. I mean, it was like, oh, okay. Oh, so that there are those uh, systemic, I think, um, uh, expectations that people come with when people talk about racism and sexism, because I think because of our society, I don't think people even know they come with them. You know, a big Mm -hmm. word nowadays is is white privilege Mm -hmm. and and people don't know what that means. Um, I just... and I know that you are, you know, you've devoted so much of your work, wherever you, whatever, whichever organization you've been with to, um, to advance ed, uh, the diversity and inclusion. And, and that, and again, when I talked with you a little bit before this, um, before today, you were talking about how to have the, how to have conversations with people who don't, uh, understand about about white and about white privilege and about racism. Can you talk a bit about how you some of your experiences or how you approach those conversations? Well, um, I mean, I think I had good training at the YWCA. They had an anti-racism task force, and um, every we worked with an organization. I don't even know if it's still in uh, operation. It was called Operation Crossroads. And they were a group of ministers who came to work with our board to talk about institutional racism and what it was. And um, during the course of that, um, we we did an exercise, uh, which I used to, uh, after that, I became a trainer and I'd go around and do that. And you would ask people to um, to say what they what they liked about being white or what they liked about being black. And many of the white women would say things like, well, I never thought about it. And I just am. And, and one of my responses at this first meeting that I went to was, I like being, I like being loose. And uh, it was a poor choice of words, but that's what I said. And it was supposed to be a brainstorming and nobody was supposed to comment on anything you said. But one woman said to me, um, well, well, do you think you're a loose woman? <laughs> and I said, I probably think irreverent is a better word, because uh, when I say something that is out of sorts, you just think I don't know any better and you just let it go. So <laughs> I enjoy playing the role of being an irrev- irreverent person. And then her response, we were not supposed to have a dialogue, but we did. Her response was, well, you are kind of arrogant. And I said, you call it arrogance and I call it confidence. There's a whole different thing. You don't call a man arrogant or you don't call a woman arrogant when she knows something or wants to bring you up short on something. And she said, you're right. You're right. And so part of this timeline that they put up as part of this training 
was from the beginning of the country till now, or when 20 years ago. And uh, they talked about what was happening in the country and where were you and where were your family mm. on this timeline. Mm. And so it became easy to say, uh, they lined us up in a group and they'd say, if your parents went to college, take two steps up. If your parents didn't go to college, step take one step back. And so by the end of the exercise, there was only one woman of color who was at the front of the line. Mm. And uh, she was related to uh, Maynard Jackson. So she came from a prominent family in Atlanta. And it, she said, I felt kind of strange being up here because I felt I was neglecting my sisters. It's sort of like I had used some kind of privilege to uh, accommodate myself as well as the world and it hadn't occurred to her it was so subtle that she didn't even recognize it so those are the kinds of things that I I used to do when I would go in and try and do it with a sense of humor without trying to make people feel guilty about you know privilege when you think I mean we talked about um one of my college friends went into Marshall Fields to um she wanted to look at a purse that was in the, uh, in the counter, it was locked up. And she said to the lady, I'd like to see that, that purse. And the woman said to her, uh, well, are you sure you can afford that? She didn't Ooh. say, that's what she said to her. And so my friend said, well, let me look at it and I'll decide. And she was a, a, a teacher in Evanston. And she said, it took my month's pay to buy that purse, but I bought it just as sure <laughs> that I could. Oh. <laughs> and so I'm sure the woman did not mean to be rude or racist. Her experience had been that most women who came in there couldn't afford that purse in the counter. Hmm. And my friend was so offended, she decided to do it. So when I started working with privileged women, these are the kinds of stories that I would tell them. Uh, in terms of looking at your own um, preconceptions about people. And you and I mm -hmm. talked a little bit about whole, the whole idea of color cast. I was just mm -hmm. uh, reading an article in today's Tribune. Um, the woman was analyzing uh, Israel Wilkerson's book on cast. And um, some of that stuff she had in there, you know, about how cast works and how you have these uh, preconceived notions that you are more like, I mean, I've been in situations where people like to think I'm more like them than different. Mm -hmm. And so I see it as my task to say, no, I'm not so different. That's not a compliment to say, oh, I forgot, or I didn't notice, or a man saying, you know, you think like a man. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think mm -hmm. like a man. I think like a woman. <laughs> and okay. in that sense, mm -hmm. in terms of going back to your question about being first, I think there, uh, somebody wrote a book about swimming with sharks mm -hmm. and it talks about that women's women work like dolphins. We, we work together and we sort of get things done as a team and men are like sharks. They have to, you know, take off everybody in order to be the top shark. In shark. The pool. <laughs> I know that you're still involved in, in, in some, a member of some boards. And then you also mentioned that you're president now of a women's club. Mm -hmm. What what have been some of your experiences um, over the years working on on these major boards like the community trust and and others in terms of helping them to recognize and maybe reach for more diversity and inclusion? 
Well, when I got on the trust board, most of the, uh, there were a few women on there, but they were pretty prominent women or women like the head of uh, Ogilvy or one of those, Leo Burnett, I think it was Leo Burnett. Um, I, um, I didn't think I was going to be asked back on the trust board, to be honest with you, for a second term. And I'll tell you what their response was. Um, I was asked to serve on the board. I had retired. And uh, I, I was asked to serve on the board. And most of the, I mean, Marshall Field was on the board and John Bryan was on the board. And so that they, they were top corporate CEOs. And uh, the, the community trust is very thorough about looking at proposals and raising good questions. They even had a question once of what's the diversity of your board? Um, and sometimes those men would be willing to, we'd ask the question and I would raise the question. Well, if you're going to ask what is the, uh, the makeup of their board, what is the diversity of their board? And they're not going to be held accountable for not having any diversity. Then why do we ask the question? Because from my experience, different people, and so one of the responses was, but they're helping so many people, they're helping minorities, you know, these agents, these were agencies who were asking for money. Um, and they were saying, well, they're helping a lot of people. And I said, that's not the point. When you have different people on the, at the table, different decisions get made. And you ask these questions because these are people who bring their experiences to bear. So sometimes it was not comfortable. So when I was asked back for a second term, I asked the CEO, Terry Mazzani, I was shocked that they would ask me back again because I would raise these questions. I didn't want to be just a name on a letterhead. And he said, well, that's why it's so important because you have been in the trenches and you've worked with these organizations. And so you can ask questions that maybe nobody thought about. And um, I think... I mean, I, I can't say it's all for me, but the trust has changed a lot. Now they have a diverse board. They have some not-for-profit people, some profit people. They even have a, a black woman who's a, who's a medical doctor, who's a CEO. So um, I do think that those are the kinds of things that get done in my own neighborhood. I live in Beverly, which is a stronghold of Irish superiority. And uh <laughs> Uh, I think that when we first moved here, um, my husband was not from Chicago. He was from suburban Philadelphia. And um, we were looking for houses. And I said, oh, black people don't live there. And his comment was, what? You should be able to live where you want to live. And I said, well, you know, it's just not going to happen. So somebody offered to show him a house. And the guy said to him, I'd like you to pretend that you're my air conditioning man. And I can show you the bowels of the house and everything. And you can see the house uh, because it's sort of redlined. And, and Tony said, I told him, I don't know what he, what uh, was a lot cheaper than it is today. But anyway, he said, I'm paying all this money for the house and I got to pretend I'm a, a air conditioning man. I don't want to see the house. So then we got another realtor and we got this house and, we moved here over the May 30th holiday and we had the windows open and somebody rode by on a bicycle and used the N word and said, get out of that house. So I was sure that they were going to burn our house down. But it, it, the fortunate part was it was a time I said to him, it'll go the way of all neighborhoods in Chicago, the first black family in and the last white family out. That's the way it works. Mm -hmm. 
But what year, what year was that, Audrey? That was in uh, 1972. Uh, but here's the deal. The, uh, uh, the, the interest rate was seven and a half percent. Wow. And these are large, lovely homes in this community. And there was no place for people to go. They weren't going to get a house like they have for what they could pay at seven and a half interest. And so they settled down um, and the neighborhood continued to be, you know, um, a nice neighbor, a nice friendly family neighborhood. And somebody said, again, in terms of the way things work in Chicago, one of my white neighbors said to me, who's still here, um, I've been here almost 50 years now. Um, Mm. She said, well, you know, one of the reasons it was so easy for you in the neighborhood is you guys were Catholic. Okay. (laughs) Because of that, because it was such an Irish stronghold? It's it's an Irish Catholic stronghold. (laughs) It still is. It still is. And it's, I think it's starting to become at the tipping point now. Um, Mm. But what I have found, as I said, I've been here, uh, let's see, my daughter's 48. I've been here 49 years. Um, And what I have found on my block alone, we have four new neighbors, all of whom are young white people who uh, have moved, who either grew up in Beverly or moved back. And my little neighbors next door who are a young couple who have children uh, four and two. Um, she said she wants her kids to have an interracial experience because that's the way the world is. Um, and so that, but she grew up on 104th Street uh, when Beverly was like the Beverly I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. it's changed. I mean, and, and one of the things that I think I have been able to do uh, is to participate in some community organizations and go to the church. I mean, we probably have maybe 5% of the church's minority. Um, there are a few Latino families there now. Um, I joined the Garden Club. And uh, then I became a board member of the Beverly Area Planning Association, which when I moved here was an association trying to say, if your house is for sale, let us know and we'll find you a buyer. Mm-hmm. But those days are gone, I think. I think. <laughs> So what would you what would you say are some of the major uh, advances improvements for people of color and women as as you've ex- as you experience it? I think I think that people are coming to grips with diversity, and there are more opportunities um, for people, even if some of them are token. I mean, if you look at the law schools and the, and the business schools, or if you look at the colleges, are far more integrated now than they were. Um, there are far more interracial marriages, um, and, and there are far more integrated neighborhoods. I mean, if you look at some of the young, my son just moved from the north side from Wicker Park to Western Springs. And um, I asked him about that question. I said, you know, what kind of diversity have you got out there? And he said, well, it's about 4%. But that, you know, uh, um, so that Olivia, who's five, is going to kindergarten now. If some of those kids out in Western Springs are growing up at five, knowing somebody like Olivia. Um, and so I think that the opportunity for uh, diversity and inclusion, since that seems to be the buzzword these days, um, a lot of corporations are more uh, looking at inclusion of women. Uh, there are a lot of women CFOs now. It seems as if that's almost a woman's job now. There are a lot of uh, CFOs, not that many CEOs. 
but um, there are. And so I think that those dynamics present a change because then you do grow up knowing people who are not like you. Mm-hmm. And so you're more willing to accept a kind of inclusion. And in, uh, I mean, even uh, I said to my daughter the other day, I said, looking at television and looking at, um, because that re- re- also relates, I guess, to the LGBTQ community. Um, if you look at the ads on television, you would think no two people of the same race or same uh, sex get married anymore because <laughs> <laughs> the commercials are so are trying to make a point, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I've and noticed you that. you see that. Have you mm-hmm. noticed that? Definitely, yes. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. very true. And, and in a lot of the little series uh, since I've been home, I've been looking at a lot of Netflix. Uh, I just looked at a show called Bridgerton. And um, I mean, race was not an issue in there. Right. It really was interesting to me. It was just not, it was obvious, but it wasn't something that was talked about. I'm just curious, Audrey, uh, about your experience with the Girl Scouts of America. Was that a long time ago? That was a long time ago. I I, I left the bank. I don't know if you want this whole history, but I... um, I, I didn't get married till I was 32 years old. So I was very much a career girl. I mean, in those days, 32 was old. It's not so old now. Um, but sure, I was married, I think, six months. My husband was 34 and I was 32 and I got pregnant. And I told the bank I was coming back. And I at that time, I was on the national board. I was the bank's representative on the national board of the Girl Scouts of the USA. And um, I... Um, I decided that I was going to continue to work because that's another thing in terms of, I think, race and class differences. You know, people like to commonly say when women went back to work, well, most black women have always worked. There are very few who have not, who've been homemakers or, or worked at home. So anyway, I came back to the bank and I was jokingly called 2-3, which was the, uh, the carrying numbers for the uh, bank. That was their code numbers. Um, and I came back and they g- gave me a different position. I'd been on a fast track and then I just got a supervisory job. I had been working in the trust department as a trust officer in the trust department. So they gave me like a supervisory job. And so uh, they said, oh, we didn't think you were coming back. And so I said, well, yeah, I'm back. And they would say things like, well, we know you got to go home tonight. So we're not going to give you this and we're not going to give you that. And so I was at the national board meeting of the Girl Scouts and the woman who was the regional director of the Chicago, it was a seven state region. She said to me, how do you like being back at work? I said, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, we're looking for some management people at the Girl Scouts. Uh, How would you like to come to work for us? And my comment to her is, I haven't changed much is, well, how much are you paying? (laughs) She said, how much are you making? So I told her, and I had forgotten my profit sharing, unfortunately. And I said, here's what I'm making. And she said, well, we'll match what you're making. So I left uh, the bank and I went to work as the associate regional director, which was a seven state region, uh, providing management services to the, the staff who were, you know, they were organizing troops and doing all that, but they didn't have any real management expertise. And so, um, she um, she retired, and um, uh, she was going to retire. And, and or I, one of my one of my associations 
was uh, that I was helping with their services was the Girl Scouts of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And the lady said, I'm going to retire. How about if you came over as my associate director and I retired? When I retire, you can become the director. So I said, okay. So I left and I came over to the Girl Scouts of Chicago. And sure enough, as soon as I got there, I found out I was pregnant again. Mm. And that was the difference in working for a women's organization and a man's organization. It was like, okay, you're pregnant. You know, that's what happens. You need any time off. Do you need this? Do you Mm. need that? And so uh, then the woman, they hired two associate directors. One did the inside, uh, which was Sue Duffy, and I did the outside. And then uh, when she retired, they didn't offer me the job. Oh, and so I got ready. Uh, was one of the best mentors I ever had. It was a PhD from Philadelphia, from uh, New York, Ann Friedis. and um, they hired her out of New York because she was going to retire in two years, and she wanted to move back to the Midwest. So I went looking for another job, and I found a job as an associate director at a smaller agency. And so I went to Anne and I told her I was leaving. And she said, okay, let me talk to you about this. She said, you don't know anything about being an executive director. That's what they would call. And I don't know anything about Chicago. If you stay (laughs) until I retire, I will recommend you to the search committee as the executive director. You teach me everything I need to know about Chicago. And I'll teach you everything you need to know about being an Mm. an executive director, Mm. which I thought was pretty smart. Mm-hmm. And so she did. I mean, we did. We had what we call tandem management. And she would take me everywhere she went when she was raising money and doing all that. And she was right. I didn't know anything. And so when she left, she they formed a search committee and she recommended me as the director and I became the director. Mm-hmm. But it meant having a woman mentor who mm-hmm. really, you know, uh, she told me stuff I didn't know anything about, like uh, uh, having a, a tax sheltered annuity. She showed me all this money she had one day in her tax shelter and nudie. And I said, whoa, where'd you get all that money? And she said, I just kept saving a little bit every, out of every check. Every time I got a raise, I would do that. So that's what I started to do. And it gave me a nice little nest egg when I left the Girl Scouts. Mm-hmm. And now I get uh, the results of that in, a, in an annuity every month. And that was 50 years ago, 40 years oh, ago. Gosh. <laughs> So it worked out very well. Uh, And then one day I was uh, working at the Girl Scouts of Chicago and a search firm came and asked me to interview for the YW job. And I, um, I had no, I didn't even know what the YWCA did. I really didn't. Um, And so they told me, and it was a bigger budget. It was a bigger staff and they were doing things to empower. I mean, we were doing stuff to empower girls. But it was sort of like you could go to any Girl Scout Council any day in the week and they'd all be working on the same badge. They weren't that different. You know, it was it was a like a cookie cutter program, but it was teaching little girls how to be salespeople and how to be self-reliant. And then when I went to the Y, they had a sexual they had the largest sexual assault program in the state. Um, they so that they had some empowering programs for girls. They had a uh, 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 with Avon, they were running a program to teach girls science, math, and technicals things before it was popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they were very, um, they were so out there. It was sort of like in the Girl Scouts, 
there were a number of women that I met in my time there who were lesbian women who couldn't come out because the Girl Scouts, uh, you know, the little cookie cutter mothers did not want their daughters. They were, you know, they had the stereotypes about going to camp with a woman who may be a, a lesbian and would protect your child. But when I got to the girls, uh, to the Y, I went to the first national meeting they had in um, Myrtle Beach. And they had, I was like stunned. They had a, uh, a sign hanging on the door that said, uh, the Black Caucus meets in room three and the, uh, the Lesbian Caucus meets in room four. And I thought they're so open about this. But I realized that a lot of those women who have what I called a lot of testosterone, <laughs> Um, they, they could have run anything, you know, but they didn't get a chance to run in a, an organization where they were competing with men. And so a lot of them became executive directors of the YWCA. Mm. So it was an interesting thing for me. And when we started talking about the empowerment of women, mm -hmm. I realized that these women really were empowered. Mm -hmm. Audrey, what, uh, what's, what's on the horizon for you now? Well, the one thing that I think it's important for me is I tell my children, because both of my children live in Chicago, and I've been a widow for 18 years, 19 years. Um, I think you've got to keep your hand in there. So right now, I'm a, I just got off of the board of the foundation for Little Company and Mary Hospital, because they merged with another OFS, the Order of Franciscan Sisters. And it's, not, it's no longer a real neighborhood hospital anymore. It's mm -hmm. bigger, you know, it's like Advocate had taken it over. So I got off that board and I was looking for another board. And um, I got on the Beverly Area Planning Association board, which is a board that plans what's going on. And then I finally, after all these years, got on a board that pays money. Uh, <laughs> I got on a board that's called Turnstone. And it uh, does affordable housing for seniors oh. in, suburban, in suburban Chicago and in Florida. So what, you know, that it, it tests my brain, as the lady said, do you know how to read a finance sheet? Um, it tests my brain to keep myself involved and to be around people who are a lot younger than I. I just didn't want to become a, you know, a lady, this, this uh, COVID thing has driven me crazy because I have to stay in the house. Um, but for for me, what's on the horizon is I have two little grandchildren. I mean, I'm 81 years old and I've got a two-year-old and a five-year-old. Um, so I would like to see them periodically. They only live 17 miles away. And my daughter, who is unmarried, uh, lives downtown. So I get to see her. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what's on the horizon for me is to continue to to keep my nose to the grindstone and to sort of raise questions with people. Um, but it's a different world for women now. I really think it's a different world. Um, you know, I think that, um, I mean, I still think there are roles that women are supposed to, you know, supposed to go home at six o'clock and take care of the children. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I use my son and his wife as an example because they have little children. She's kind of a stay-at-home mom, but she doesn't want to be a stay-at-home mom. She wants to be out working. And he works for a television network, so he's gone a lot. But right now, they are, um, you know, with COVID, they're wor he's working at home. 
so that I look at them and I think, okay, Allison is, is a modern day girl. You know, she, she's probably going to put Archer in a daycare when he's three and she'll get a part-time job because she says she likes being involved with the neighbors in the school, but she wants to, you know, if you stay out of the works too long, it's hard to get back in. Mm. And she's only 36. So, you know, mm. It's an interesting time, but I just sort of see what's on the horizon for me is still out here working, trying to get people to understand that we're more alike than different. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I, I also, when I do my trainings, my mother used to use the Eleanor Roosevelt thing that says, nobody can make you feel bad about yourself unless you give them permission. Mm -hmm. And you'll be damned if you're ever going to give them permission. So <laughs> that's what I tell these young people. Wonderful note to close on. Um, I, I wish we could continue talking with you much longer, but um, we, we do need to close. I, Audrey, thank you so much for um, talking with us today, and and it's uh, I've learned a great deal from you, and um, I'm ha I'm happy to hear that you're going to keep in your nose to the grindstone. That's so, right. Good somebody's got to somebody's got to make us look good, right? Okay. <laughs> Well, thank you for the opportunity, ladies. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. And listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our community through our Facebook group. And no matter your age, participate in our monthly Zoom gatherings. You'll find everything you need to know about our Women Over 70 community on womenover70.com. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.